Our text today is from Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue our study in worship that is pleasing to God. Uh, hear now God's holy word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is indeed living and active and powerful. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit now to guide us into truth. I pray that you give me articulate speech and clarity of thought. And Father, let your blessing and your mercy rest upon us now in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When is the last time you went shopping for a Bible? I know what you were probably thinking when you did that. You thought, I just, I just want a Bible. You know, a reliable translation, a good binding, something that's going to last for a while. And you go to Barnes & Noble, or you go to the Christian bookstore, or you scroll through Amazon, and what you find is hundreds of pink and camouflage volumes uh, in translations you've never heard of, in editions you didn't know existed. In recent years, we've seen the publication of the Extreme Teen Bible, the Young Women of Faith Bible, the Spirit-Filled Life Bible, the Edge Devotional Study Bible, the End Times Prophecy Bible, the Holy Spirit Encounter Bible, the Children of Color Bible, KidsBible.com, the complete Bible for today's e-kid. We're always like 15 years behind. That was like, that's like late 90s, right? Uh, that, that would be relevant. And then the one Bible that no theological library should be without the Encouragement Bible, <laughs> subtitled The Bible for Those Who Hurt. Um, I'm hurting just reading this list here today, <laughs> so maybe I need that. Now, I'm going to use the judgment of charity and assume that perhaps there's a genuine desire somewhere along the way behind some of these publications, there's a desire to present the Bible in an attractive and relevant way. But it is still concerning when you consider the way that the Holy Bible is being handled by those who are currently in charge of printing it. It's being marketed to the individual tastes and needs of, of various people. Now, we can appreciate, and I give thanks to God for the fact that the Bible is more accessible in our day than it ever has been in the history of the church. And we can praise God that he is using the work of publishers to keep his word in print. And not only in print, but you can have an app on your phone where you can read the Bible. On your e-reader, there are audio Bibles that are very, very helpful, and you can use those as well. However, we can still ask whether those currently in charge of publishing and distributing the Bible are always holding the highest and best uh, interests of the church in mind. Because the assumption implicit in some of these narrowly marketed Bibles is that the scriptures are intended primarily to be read and interpreted in isolation, that they're to be read and interpreted by individuals, that the, that the Bible is essentially a book written for individual Christians and for their benefit. How many times have you heard this very thing? How many times have you heard the Bible is God's love letter written to you, to you as an individual? 
And the idea there is that all you need is you and your Bible. And that's really the sum of the Christian faith. That's all that is required. Well, um, you and your Bible is how cults get started. You and your Bible is how you get you know, Mormonism and how you get you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others. So we have to recover the understanding that the Bible is the holy book that is entrusted to the church. The Bible is the church's book. It was written to the church and it was the church that determined very early on what books would be included in the canon and which books did not belong. The church undertook the task of painstakingly preserving, copying, translating, and distributing the Bible. The, the church has always put a high priority on her role in the Bible's preservation. It's from the Bible that the church draws her identity and her calling. The church goes to the Bible for her instruction. It's under the authority of the Bible that the church places herself. And then I know that someone is thinking as they hear this, are you saying that I can't read the Bible by myself? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying at all. You must read the Bible. You must study and search the scriptures. You must hide it in your heart. You must memorize it and know it and know how it's put together, know it inside and out. You must know the Bible. But you understand that the Bible didn't come from Thomas Nelson Publishers, and it didn't come from Crossway. And it doesn't belong to the academics at the university. And it doesn't belong to the marketing department at the publishing house. The Bible comes to you through the church. It has been preserved and, and kept through the church. And it cannot be obeyed or understood apart from life in the body of Christ. It's up to us to recover this sense that the church is our, I mean, the, the, the Bible is our book. And that is to say that it is ours covenantally. It is ours corporately. God's word does its work among us and in us when we're gathered together, when we hear it read publicly, when we hear it expanded and expounded out loud, God's word is to be boldly and unashamedly proclaimed, sung, received, enjoyed, and obeyed in community, not in isolation, in community. And that happens primarily, ordinarily that happens in worship. Over the last few weeks, we've been taking a long look at the worship of the Christian church. We've paid attention to the instruction of the Old Testament regarding worship. We've also looked at those heavenly scenes of worship that were given. We're watching for patterns, for examples, for structures, for sequences that please God. They're things that he has commanded that please him. And we will please him when we pick up on these things and we follow them. We've observed how Christian worship from antiquity and around the world today, Christian worship has followed the patterns of the Old Testament sacrifices. In the Old Testament, God prescribed three principal sacrifices for his people in this order, the sin offering, the ascension offering, and the peace offering. These three, except we don't offer animal sacrifices today, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans 12. That is our reasonable service or our reasonable liturgy. It's the same word. 
And so we follow that very same sacrificial order because God has already said, this is what pleases me, sin offering, ascension offering, peace offering. And he said it over and over and over and he demonstrated it over and over. And so we follow the same sacrificial order. We do the sin offering. We repent of our sins. We do the ascension offering. We ascend into the heavenlies by the spirit to hear his word taught. We hear it read. We hear it explicated to us. And then we have the peace offering. We eat at the altar uh, before, before God. We eat with Jesus and we follow that same sacrificial order. Uh, last week, we looked at the heavenly visions of worship. And we noticed when we look into heaven and we see how worship runs in heaven, uh, heavenly worship is corporate. Heavenly worship is a dialogue. There are songs and things being said back and forth between the angels and the throne. And heavenly worship is orderly. And if we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we pray that prayer genuinely, then our worship must be corporate, it must be a dialogue, and it must be orderly. And then at the very end of the sermon last week, I started walking through our order of worship. I started walking through our liturgy, pointing out things along the way. We studied the sin offering last week, the cleansing section. We come into God's presence and we confess our sins. Today, I'd like to continue into the middle section of our liturgy, and talk about the ascension offering, where every week we have the ministry of the word. We rise up into the heavenlies by the spirit, and we hear God speak, and our lives are reordered by him. So after, what happens after we repent of our sins? We rise to our feet, we lift up our heads, and we're ready to ascend into God's presence. Liturgy is like a journey. Every Lord's Day, we're taking a trip. You started the trip this morning when you got up out of bed, you put on special clothes, you came to a special place, you came to the courts of God, but then we come together and we gather at the bottom of the stairs, as it were, to confess our unworthiness to come into God's presence. We have sinned. We have broken his covenant. We don't belong in his holy place until we have sorted things out. So we confess our sins. He hears our confession. He tells us that we're forgiven, and then he invites us up into his presence. Come up into my holy place to hear me and be fed by me. We're like Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel. When they come to Mount Sinai, God commands them at the bottom of the mountain. He says, wash your clothes and make yourselves clean at the bottom of the mountain. And then after they do that, then he calls him up to his presence and he speaks to them and then they eat and drink in his presence. Well, we do the very same thing every Lord's Day. We're not coming to Mount Sinai, we're coming to Mount Zion. And we gather at the bottom of the mountain, we wash our clothes, we get cleansed. You know, anytime you come in, you wipe your feet before you come into a house. You wash your hands before you eat a meal. Um, there are cleansing, uh, cleansing happens before you come into God's presence. And so we, we were cleansed and then we come up, up into his presence. We go up Mount Zion and we are spoken to by God. We respond with thanksgiving and we eat and drink in his presence. Um, this sense of going up, this, this sense of a journey after the prayer of confession is why the church has typically had that call and response. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Why do we say that? We're recognizing that we're taking a trip. We are lifting our hearts up in the spirit into the heavenlies to participate in the worship that's going on around the throne of God. We're noticing, we're recognizing uh, that, that we're, we're going up to the heavenlies. And so that's when there's a trumpet blast. I would love to have a trumpet uh, right there, um, or we have a chord on the organ, or we have a chord on the piano. It's a loud, a blast or a bang. What's going on there? Well, that's 
like the voice of the trumpet. There's a trumpet blast that summons John into the heavenlies. The trumpets summoned God's people to assemble. The trumpets call um, uh, John up into the heavenlies. And so we, we have that uh, uh, jolting, loud trumpet blast. And then we sing the song of the angels. We sing, holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah looks into heaven, that's what the angels are singing. When John goes up into heaven, that's what the angels are singing. And so we join in that choir. They've already been singing that song for a long time. We're just now showing up. We're coming into the heavenlies and we're joining in the choir of the angels singing holy, holy, holy. That song is called the Sanctus, which is just the Latin word for holy. To remind ourselves, we sing that to remind ourselves that for the rest of the service, that's where we are. We're worshiping before the throne of God with the angels and the saints in heaven and the saints on earth. We're gathered together with them and our praise is, is joining their praise. So after we sing, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory, that song of the angels, then I lead us in a prayer reflecting on that reality. Every Lord's Day I say something like, I change the middle of it from time to time, but I say, it is proper and right that we should at all times and all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, and everlasting King. And then I end it with, so with all the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, with the, with the church on earth, we praise and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. We're acknowledging what we're doing right there in that part of the, uh, of the service. We're ascending into the, into the heavenlies. Now, we find ourselves in that ascension that consecration part of the service. This is where in the middle, we focus on the word. The whole service is shot through with Bible. The whole service has scripture. We spend the whole service hearing and reading and singing God's word. But here, especially in the middle, the focus is on what God is saying and the application of the word. Now, you remember in the Old Covenant, as we covered the sacrifices in the Ascension offering, which is translated in most of our Bibles as whole burnt offering, it's because the animal is completely consumed on the altar. But the, but the word there means going up. The word there means ascension. I prefer to call it the Ascension offering. That's where the animal was cut up in a certain way, and there was a particular arrangement of the animal parts on the altar. It had to be cut up and segmented by the priest he took out his priestly sword, cut it up, and arranged it on the altar. Uh, do it just like God prescribed. When we get over to the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews explains the old covenant liturgy, the temple, the priesthood, the Sabbath, the feast days, the purifications, we learn that uh, all of these things foreshadow Jesus and we take all of this information and we filter it through Jesus and we respond to it and understand things in light of his work, in light of the resurrection. And so I read just at the beginning that part uh, from Hebrews 4 where we read that now as living sacrifices, we go through the ascension offering. We are cut up and we are arranged on the altar by the word of God. Let me read that again. I read it at the beginning, but, but listen closely and think, think sacrifice. Uh, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, not the sword of a Roman soldier, not the sword of a gladiator. This is the sword of the priest. 
It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is the priestly sword that cuts up not just joints and marrow as it did under the old covenant, but it cuts up our mind and our spirit. When under the old covenant, the worshiper looks at that animal being cut up and arranged. Remember, the animal is always uh, representing the worshiper. So you look at that and you say, I need to be cut up and I need to be rearranged and I need to be put back together and I need to be completely consumed by God's uh, uh, Holy Spirit and, and his fire. That's the point of the sacrifices. This has always been the point of the sacrifices so that the sword cuts up our mind and spirit and butterflies our heart, as it were, opens it right up. This is where he inspects us and takes us apart and puts us back together in the right way. Again, that was always the point of the sacrifices. I was reading in, uh, in uh, Hosea this week, studying for, for something else, and I, uh, I just came across this. It just jumped out at me. Over in Hosea 6, Hosea, the prophet of God, is correcting Israel for her idolatries, and Yahweh is speaking through Hosea. And listen to this. Therefore, I have hewn them. I've hewn the people by the prophets. What is, what is to hew something? It's to chop it, to chop it up. I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. That's the sword of his mouth that he has used against them. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than ascension offerings. Even in the old covenant, even in the old Testament, there's this recognition that yes, the sacrifice is obedience to God, but it's always reflective of the deeper reality of what is happening here is that not only is the animal being cut up, but more importantly, you and your life is being taken apart and submitted to God's word. You're cut up and put back together. And God does all of this reordering by the same voice with which he created us. He speaks creation into existence, and that same voice still has creative power. In fact, in Hebrews, he tells us it is living and active. It is living and powerful. How often have you heard a leftist in some capacity or a secularist say, why should we obey a book that's 2,000 years old? That's reflective of old values and old opinions and things that people used to do, but it's absolutely irrelevant for life today. Why should we pay attention to it? It's just an old, dead, dusty book. If, in fact, the Bible is an old, dead, dusty book full of other people's opinions from 2,000 years ago, then I tell you what, why don't we turn the lights off and just leave and go play golf or go play football on Sunday. I mean, go, go to a game, have fun, go do something else. Why are we here? It's because the word of God is living and it is powerful. It will address every hurt, every fear, every anxiety, every issue of life that you experience. It will cover the entire gamut of human experience and instruct you wherever you are and it's powerful, meaning that if you obey it, your life will be pleasing to God and your life will be fruitful. Your life will not always be a picnic, but your life will be fruitful. 
God will be pleased with your life because the word of God is living and it is applicable. It is not an old, dead, dusty, 2,000-year-old book that is irrelevant. Get its principles and its patterns in you and see what happens to your life. Follow God and, and think his thoughts after him and see what happens. It is living and powerful. And so we need his voice. We need his word. It is essential for us. So in this middle section of worship, we get lots of it. First off, here's how we get some of the word into us. The first thing we do is we sing a psalm back and forth to each other. Now, uh, in, your, in your Psalter hymnal, uh, by the way, the first 150 songs in here are all metrical psalms. And so do you know what page Psalm 89 is on? Page 89. Do you know where Psalm 150 is? It's on page 150. The first 150 are all metrical psalms. Now, what is a, what is a metrical psalm? A metrical psalm is, is someone has taken the words of Scripture and has arranged them so that they fit a tune or they fit a rhyme structure. And so if we look at Psalm 42, which I love. I love Psalm 42. I love the metrical Psalm 42. I love the Genevan Psalter that it came from. I love everything about it. But it says, as the heart about to falter in its trembling agony, longs for flowing streams of water, so, O oh God, I long for thee. It rhymes and it fits the tune. It fits the meter of the tune. In metrical Psalms, we've taken the words of scripture and we've rearranged them to fit a tune. Um, and it's great, and it's good. And if we sing that, I will say, yeah, we just sang Psalm 42. However, we have altered the text to fit the meter. We have altered the text to fit a really good melody. Once a week, we like to, and we are convicted to, sing a psalm just as it was written in the inspired order of words and thought. Of course, we're translating it into a good English translation, we're not singing it in Hebrew. We are singing it in English. But at least we're following the word order and the thought order that the Holy Spirit inspired. And so once a week, we take a psalm and we sing it back and forth to each other. Why do we do that, that call and response? Well, the psalms were written in such a way to be sung antiphonally, back and forth, like we do them. If you go back to the Psalm 102 that we sang this morning, you see this. I said... I sang, hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and you sang, and let my cry come unto you. So um, Hebrew poetry is uh, mostly written in parallelisms. So hear my prayer, O Yahweh, is a thought. It's a complete thought. But and let my cry come unto you is saying the same thing in different words. In fact, what's happening in the Psalms, I mean, in the, in the next line, look at this. Do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. That's saying the same thing that the first phrase said, but it's saying it in a different way. This back and forth demonstrates the way that the bridegroom is speaking to the bride. He speaks, she ponders it, she internalizes it, she glorifies it, and then she speaks it back to him in a new way. And this is what we do back and forth throughout the Psalter. Um, by the way, we're working through the entire Psalter presently. We're all the way up to Psalm 102. We've been doing this for a couple years now. And that means we've got 48 more Psalms to go before we're done. And uh, Psalm 119 is going to take a couple of weeks. And we'll, we'll get through it. We'll get through it, though. 
But this, this back and forth demonstrates uh, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride responding. We could say it. There would be nothing wrong with saying or reading the psalm together, but it's more glorious to sing it. It's important to remember here that, that music has always been a major part of worship, of Christian worship. And I'm going to say this again later, but worship has never been simply an intellectual exercise. We're not here to just get our brains filled with data. That's not what it's all about. We participate artistically in worship by singing and through instrumental music. And so traditionally, almost all the responses and all the prayers in Christian worship were sung. John Calvin wrote somewhere, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, why say something when you can sing it? Uh, Augustine wrote, the lover sings. Singing is a response to what God has done for us. When you're in love, you sing. Lovers sing to each other. Lovers don't just talk to each other, they sing to each other. And where there's love, there's music. So Paul in Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How are we supposed to do that? How do we let the word of Christ dwell richly with us in all wisdom? We need to go to a mountaintop or we need to go into a cave and we just need to contemplate and meditate on it. That's how we let it dwell in us, right? Is that what Paul says? That's not what he says. He says this, let it dwell richly in you with all wisdom. How? teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's how it dwells in us. He says, when you're together, you sing. And that's the way the word of God is going to dwell in you richly. Now, there's a practical aspect. When you sing something, you have a better chance of remembering. So singing God's word is a good way of remembering and memorizing God's word. But not only that, music glorifies speech. Good speech by itself is glorious, but poetry is more glorious. And poetry is glorified when you add musical notes to it. You sing poetry and that's even more glorious. And then more people singing adds more glory. And then if you add harmonies and you add parts as we did this morning, that psalm was so glorious this morning. Thank you for singing it out. Thank you for taking parts up here. I get the best seat in the house because I get to hear the whole choir singing every Lord's Day. And I'm so thankful for it. We sing as much as we can, as joyfully as we can, because singing is a glorification of the word. So we don't stick our hands in our pockets and we don't mumble and we don't just stand there when it's time to sing. Singing is not something that's just for women and children. Nothing is more invigorating and encouraging. And what Paul says, this is how you teach each other. This is how you admonish each other. And how much more effective and powerful is it when we have male voices roaring out in song? It doesn't have to be lovely. It should be loud. Shout it out. That's the heart about to falter. I want to hear that more than I want to hear. Don't be embarrassed. This is God's word. You love him. You're redeemed by him. You're saved by him. He has given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so sing it out. We sing because we love the word and we love the one who speaks it to us. And he wants to hear it spoken back to him, glorified in song. So that's what we do. We read and we sing the psalm. And after that, there are various readings of scripture. Um, the elder rises and he reads the Bible to us. Some of you may have wondered, why do we have these particular texts 
And what do they have to do with anything else in the service? Well, we follow what is called the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a schedule of Bible readings that goes through almost the entire Bible in about three years. And the majority of Protestant churches who follow a set liturgy follow the same schedule that we're following so that we're all hearing the same text every Lord's Day with millions and millions of Christians around the world who are also hearing those same texts. So what that means is that the Holy Spirit is confronting the church with the same texts every Lord's Day. Where did we get this idea? Well, the church got this idea for a schedule of readings from the synagogue. The synagogues that Jesus grew up in had a schedule of readings and they would designate a reader for the lectionary. And so remember in Luke's gospel, Jesus goes to the synagogue and somebody hands him the scroll from Isaiah and Jesus gets up and reads from Isaiah because on the Sabbath it was his turn to read or maybe he offered to read and they hand him the scroll. Jesus didn't ask for Isaiah. He didn't ask for that scroll. They gave it to him because that was the reading. That was the prescribed reading for the day. We have a schedule. We're going to work through the whole Bible. And today it's Isaiah. And so Jesus takes the scroll and it just so happened to be about him on that day. It just happened to be a text that was about him, you know, as luck would have it. Uh, no, it didn't have anything to do with luck. The spirit orchestrated that. Liturgy quenches the spirit. Liturgy makes everything dead and dry and dusty. Well, no, when we do things in an orderly way and we do it sincerely and we do it genuinely and do it enthusiastically, when we do things in a thought out way, we're not quenching the spirit. He, the spirit uses our order and he uses our plans just as he did on that day when Jesus was in the synagogue. It was already planned what was gonna be read that day and Jesus preached from that text. He could have preached from any text and got to himself, obviously, uh, but, he, but he used that one. And that was important that that would be the one that he read that day. So we use a schedule to hear large sections of scripture being read and we hear God speaking. Now, when the elder is reading the scriptures of all times in worship, this is the time to come to attention when the word is being read and we hear God speaking. Listen closely to the word that's being read. This is not the time of the service during the scripture reading. This is not the time of the service to get up and take a potty break. This is not the time to get a drink of water. Now, obviously, if there's an emergency, you, you take care of it. But this is not the time to check out. If I get up and start wandering around during the reading of the word, I'm disrespecting the voice of my father. I'm also distracting other people who are trying to listen to the voice of the Father. In reading the word, the Father is speaking. And so we come to attention. We sit and we listen and we pay attention to what's being said. After the reading of the word, the elder says, the word of the Lord. And we respond, thanks be to God. In doing that, we're training our lips to be thankful. The liturgy helps us to say what we should always say. We should always give thanks whenever God's word is read. And you may not feel particularly thankful on any given Sunday, but the liturgy disciplines us in thanksgiving. You may be distracted, your mind may be a million miles away, but then you hear, thanks be to God, and you come to it, you say, oh yeah. Um, or you hear the word of the Lord, and you say, yeah, thanks be to God. I am thankful for God's word. So after the elder reads, and we respond in singing, next comes the sermon. 
a lot of American evangelicals assume that everything before the sermon is just kind of build up. Everything's just kind of fanfare for the sermon. The sermon is to be this engaging, informative, convicting, helpful, intellectual event. And everything else is just the stuff that helps you get ready for this. And then I could tell certain people who visited our, our church, they get kind of aggravated when there's too much stuff before the sermon or too much stuff after it. The sermon's over. We got more stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, we got more stuff to do. Actually, we, we, we do more than preach. Uh, there's, there's stuff other to do. But we, but we haven't been trained. We haven't been trained to think that there are other things we need to do when we get together. And so you really just can't pull the sermon out and think, well, we have the substance of worship. We have everything. If we just have the sermon, no, the sermon does not live on its own. We have other things to do when we gather. We are here to confess our sins. We need to confess our faith. We need to praise God, to pray with supplications and, and with uh, asking the Lord to do things, to intercessions, to give to commune together. Worship is not just preaching. When we, when we treat the sermon as if it's the high point, the substance of worship, then we ask the sermon to do everything that the rest of the service is designed to do. We think that the whole experience of worship rises or falls based on the quality of the sermon. The sermon is supposed to stir you to conviction. It's supposed to move you. It's supposed to make you feel sorry for your sins. It's supposed to give you lots of applications that you can use in your life and do it all in an entertaining way and keep it to about 22 minutes and then we're all good. But uh, because we have so many different expectations, I ought to at least explain to you a few uh, things that, uh, a few suppositions that I bring and what, what I'm believe that it is to be and where I get that in the text of scripture. But, but first, um, the sermon is not a seminary class. It's not a uh, course on systematic theology. You get this model in churches where um, congregants bring highlighters and they bring Greek New Testaments to worship with them. We were in a church a long time ago where, uh, you know, we had these young guys who, you know, were trying to prove something by, by bringing Greek Bibles. Like, he's not going to get anything away, you know, get away with anything this week. I've got the Greek in front of me. As if the sermon is purely education. Well, the sermon ought to be theologically accurate. And there are times where we get into some really technical stuff. We get into some fairly technical subjects. But the sermon is not just about getting data into your head. It's not just about getting ideas into your head every week. Also, the sermon is not the time to convict you of the three things you aren't doing with your finances this week, and the next week, 10 things you need to do to be a better husband, and then the following week, five things you need to do to be a better parent. You end up trying to keep up with this growing list of absolutes that you can never keep up with, and that leaves you always feeling like a bum, always. But that's what some people have been trained to expect, that if preaching doesn't make me feel like a bum, then it's not good. It's not, good, it's not a good sermon. I, I've heard people say before, I need application. And what I hear people saying is, I need laws to follow. That's what I hear. I need application. Well, you, you're asking for laws. Tell me the Christian way to walk my dog and tell me the Christian way to wash my car. That's what I want. Well, you see, God's word does direct us in life and there's wisdom to apply to walking your dog and to washing your, everything in life. God's word has instruction and wisdom. It does reshape our thinking and our world, obviously. But my goal every week is not to heap a new list of burdens on you every single week where how do you even keep track of it all? You see, there's a seed of truth in every misconception, but the problem is taking that seed and making it the whole. 
the church, uh, the, the sermon is not the Oprah show or the Dr. Phil show, if those are even still a thing, or the view. I don't know what, I don't know what people go to today to get their self-help pop wisdom, uh, but, but it's not any of those. That's not what the sermon is. I'm not here to give you little fortune cookie sayings that kind of sound right, and if I can get them all to start, all the points to start with the same letter or to rhyme to help you be all you can be and tell you a story that makes you wipe away a tear. And if I've done all that, then I've done my job. Now again, preaching ought to have an element of encouragement, but not in a way that ignores the scriptures. Then of course, there's this expectation that every sermon be evangelistic, that every sermon be directed to the unbeliever with the hope that the unbeliever will come to faith and be converted. And then if there are no unbelievers in the service, well then my job is to preach to you the same elementary building blocks of the gospel because some of you may be faking it. Some of you may not really be a Christian and maybe you need to hear it as if for the first time and I need to convict you of that. Again, absolutely, preaching must communicate the gospel and our need for a savior, but worship is for Christians. Unbelievers are welcome to join us, but we don't target everything toward them. There are other times to preach the gospel for evangelism and to build relationships with unbelievers. So what is it then? If the sermon is in a seminary class, and if it's not a guilt trip, and if it's not a self-help show, and if it's not a tent revival, what is it? Well, you get this scene in Nehemiah where the people of God have been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and they get back to start building the temple and rebuilding the city. Uh, they, they have to recommit themselves to keeping God's law and recommit themselves to the covenant. And Ezra the scribe stands before the people. He stands before the entire congregation of people on a platform, and he reads the book of the law together with the Levites. And Nehemiah 8 says this, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. I think that's what preaching is. I don't mean to oversimplify things, but I think ordinarily that's what we're supposed to do. And that's why I like to go through whole books, verse by verse by verse, because then you get to do what Ezra did. The word of God is read, the preacher gives the sense, and he helps the people understand the reading. Now, occasionally, we step aside and we do other little series on practical things like we're doing right now. But ordinarily, what we do for the majority of the time, ordinarily, we define a, a, our job here in the middle of worship. A great sermon is one where you've heard God's word read, where you're helped to understand what's there. I want God's word to speak to all of us. And the way to do that is to do that verse by verse or else we'll just camp out on hobbies and, and topics that we just cycle through. When you do this, you're just reading God's word and giving the sense. When you do this, some sermons will really connect with you and some won't. Some won't do that as well. And that's okay. Not every sermon has to blow me out of my chair to be helpful and nourishing. Just like not every meal has to be a filet with a lobster tail and a baked potato. Not every meal has to be that. It's great when you get it. It's so helpful and nourishing, but you know what else is helpful and nourishing? A ham sandwich, white bread, ham, mayonnaise, fresh tomato. I haven't eaten today, so I'm, I'm hungry. <laughs> um, I, but it, that's just right. That ham sandwich is just right, and it hits the spot, and I'm gonna eat again? That's not gonna be my last meal ever. So not every sermon has to be memorable, just like not every meal is memorable. 
I doubt you could tell me what you ate for lunch three weeks ago, but you ate it and you're still here. You're nourished and you're sustained by it. Moreover, we are nourished and sustained by the preaching of the word because in preaching, we are being spoken to personally by God's ordained representative. Faithful preaching is God's word to you. When Jesus sent out the 70 disciples, he said this, he said, he who hears you hears me. He who receives you receives me. He who rejects you rejects me. Jesus identified with his people and he said, when you go out and you preach, the people are hearing me. And then Luke 10, he says, when you faithfully tell them my word and they get offended, they get offended at me because you're carrying my word. You're taking my message out to the people. Paul told the Galatians, he said, when I came to preach the gospel to you, you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. When I came to you, you treated me like Jesus. And he writes to the Thessalonians. He says, we thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You received my word, but you received it as the word of God. Over and over and over and over, we see the testimony that the faithful preaching of the word of God is not simply a word about Jesus. It is the word from Jesus. Now, we can make all kinds of qualifications, and maybe we should. We should say men are sinners. Pastors are sinners. Ministers are not infallible. They make mistakes, and all of this is true. And I always, before God, I try my best. When we're dealing with difficult subjects, when we're dealing with the mysteries of Scripture and God's Word, I always want to say, I am making my best effort to explain this, but please do your own study and search the Scriptures, and let's figure this out together. We can make all of these qualifications, and it's also true that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And he uses the preaching of sinful men to communicate his truth. And he gives you his Holy Spirit to internalize it, to ponder it, and to speak it back. That's why I always pray as we get into a sermon. I always pray, Holy Spirit, lead us into the truth. Your word is truth. Give us your Holy Spirit so that his Holy Spirit is resting on you. Even as I'm reading and explaining the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is working it into you. So many times one of you, uh, after two or three weeks, will come back to me and you'll say, "Uh, remember when you said this? Boy, that was really helpful. And I look at you and I nod because I didn't say that. (laughs) I have a manuscript and I know what I said and I know I didn't say that. But I'm nodding my head and saying, yeah, but what's happened? What's happened? And and often... 99.9% of the time, it's really good. And I wish I would have said it. If I could go back, I would have said that. What has happened then? Well, the Holy Spirit has worked his word into your life and your mind and your heart. And you've internalized it. And then it comes back out in an interesting, helpful way. So many times this, this happens because the Holy Spirit is doing the work and we depend on him to do his work. And so when I walk out of here on a Sunday morning, oh, I could have, man, that was a mess. I didn't do very good at all. I still trust that the Holy Spirit is doing his work because his word is being read. 
So that's what my goal in preaching is. I want you to know what it is. And that's why I'm taking this time today to explain it. My goal is to let you hear through me the voice of your heavenly father. And I want to take all of me that distracts from that out of the way. And I want you to hear the voice of your father. This is not some high intellectual event. This is not a TED talk. Uh, This is not the time to say everything that could be said about a subject, but this is the opportunity to bring God's word to you to help you get a handle on the story of his mighty acts in the world to hear his word speak to you for you to pick up on patterns and examples and symbols and the beautiful mysteries of his word so that you can think his thoughts after him and live in skill and wisdom and to then prosper and to bear fruit. If this were a theology class, You know, we could just ship off the kids and we could have a really good intense study time, but it isn't that. The father is speaking to all of us. He's dealing with all of us in a special way. And he does it through his servant. He does it through his word and he does it through his spirit. So let's open our ears and our hearts and our minds for him to do his work with his sword to cut us up and to arrange us by his will week by week. And we'll continue on the study next week. But for now, let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed, we do pray that your spirit would use your word as it is read, as it is sung, as it is proclaimed, as it is expounded week by week. May the word uh, dwell in us richly in this place, in this congregation, so that we might encourage and exhort and admonish each other uh, uh, weekly and daily. Father, uh, we do pray uh, for your blessing to rest upon us. Be merciful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.